Today on Semi-Intellectual Musings, we get social and ask, how can we learn through the networks we've been taught to hate? From foot classrooms to lecturing on the fly, we explore how social media can potentially revolutionize learning and teaching. This is Social Media and the Classroom. Woman, woman, tell me your name, let me have my life reclaimed. How's it going, buddy? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Uh, I haven't been sleeping very well, man. Uh, the uh, the interviews, I think, uh, that we've been doing for Chronic City has uh, taken a toll on my sleep schedule. So um, had this appointment uh, maybe four or five days ago. Uh, went to the Ottawa uh, campus, hospital campus, and got some electrodes put uh, on my head. Oh, so wait, wait, what? What? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I got some electrodes put on my head, uh, breathing tube put in my nose, uh, electrodes on my chin, top of my head. You know what I'm talking about, of that course. That sounds horrible. Why? <laughs> so why did you do this? Uh, well, I got abducted by some of uh, Rob Christopherson's <laughs> aliens. No, um, I went for a sleep study. So uh, they generally look for sleep apnea, and the lady's like, eh, maybe you might have a slight case of that, but not really. Uh, so I got them to more or less measure my brain waves and see nice. what my sleep patterns are looking like. So I'm looking forward to the results. Uh, I was, uh, didn't have the worst sleep ever. It was a little strange, but, uh, yeah, yeah I survived it. Here I am. Yeah. Yeah. I have been sleeping fantastic, Matt. Uh, don't need no electrodes. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. That's uh, a nice change. Yeah. <laughs> it, it has been a nice change. And I've been putting a lot of effort into trying to have a, preset kind of number of hours per day, per night it's not easy but you know if uh you know as a piece of advice if everyone can get as an adult seven or eight hours of sleep a night it does wonders for the body just absolute wonders so that's what i'm trying to do um, that, that's good man they um they teach this in the um insomnia workshop that i've been going to as well that's another thing i've been up to but uh We'll get more into that later, but uh, yeah, that is good advice. If you can sleep a certain amount, a set amount of hours, uh, that is the quickest way to beat insomnia. So uh, without further ado, Phil, why don't you let them all know what they're listening to here, bud? Yeah, welcome. This is Semi-Intellectual Musings, podcast that looks at social sciences, humanities, and arts. We do it through a variety of ways, sometimes a book review, sometimes we'll do it on an interview, uh, but mostly we look at the published world and how it relates to your everyday life. Uh Matt, today we are going to be talking about a new form of published worlds. I'm going to pluralize that. Uh, social media. Uh, but before we do, last episode or two episodes ago, we talked about resilience. And it generated some uh, pretty interesting reactions from folks. Um, that's yeah, that's awesome. I saw that as well, actually. Um, yeah. uh, even myself, like I usually listen to our episodes twice after they've been released. Uh, just to kind of work on my podcasting game. But with the resilience one, I actually have listened to it at least three, maybe three and a half times. Uh, I got a lot of ideas out of it, um, probably generated for myself, like three show ideas for us. So um, I thought it was cool. It was like this nice balance. I thought you did a really good job, Phil, first off. Um, so pat yourself on the back because that was a Phil episode. And, that was a Phil um, episode. And I thought it was a nice balance of like, academic stuff, but also relevant to the everyday world. We mixed in some history. Um, it was 
weirdly lighthearted. Like I didn't feel bummed out afterwards, <laughs> but good, I felt yeah. like I wanted to do something about the world. So it was like, there was a lot to chew on in it. So I was pretty surprised. I think we did pretty well, man. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, yeah. so what about, um, like you were saying, we've had some pretty interesting discussions of people like, you know. Yeah, so I got or? something in the mailbag and I, I'm going to read it. Mailbag? Yeah. We got a mail. We got a mail. Uh, so I'm just going to read it and then uh, I'll read my, I'll kind of talk about my answer to it. So uh, they say, hey, the episode on resilience was really good. When I saw the title, I thought, I'm not sure about this one, but you guys did a great job. It was actually probably the most thought-provoking podcast I've ever listened to. But there's one thing that you said that I thought, what? It's when you said something along the lines of, if you live in an area where there's natural disasters and you don't prepare for it, then you deserve what you get. Something like that. Not a direct quote. Can you explain what you meant a bit more? Absolutely, I can. I love questions like this. Um, So I think what I was trying to say is that there's a sentiment that if one doesn't prepare, they deserve or should expect the consequences of an event like a flood. Like, I don't think this, like, this is not my, like, this isn't Phil that's saying you deserve what you get. But I, I got the general feeling that when, um, you know, I read comments or talk to folks that have experience with natural disasters or disasters of any kind, that's kind of what they're, what they're saying. So my analysis uh, in the episode, just to clarify, is that resilience thinking has shifted how we view trauma. Uh, no longer are we expected to come together as like a large unit and kind of cope through struggles. Um, and the private insurance industry carries a very similar and related uh, kind of effect, right? So we're expected to be prepared, usually individually, and those that don't are seen as a burden to others. So my argument around resilience um, is that the individualization of risk and the associated responsabilization of preparedness come together through and in the idea of resilience. That was kind of like the main takeaway. And I don't think I really made that point and articulated it in that way during the episode. Um, So I thank the person who emailed us that question. Actually, it was a Facebook uh, comment, but uh, regardless of how it got to us, it was a great question. So thank you for that. That's um, it is a, actually a, a really uh, interesting critique of our critique and uh, a good clarity. So I, I feel like sometimes um, when you're explaining a complicated uh, concept like resilience in this particular application of it, uh, my job as um, your co-host is to ask the questions around clarity and uh, getting you to like reiterate something or make something more clear so that uh, the listeners can uh, get what you're actually meaning. So uh, I'll take part of the blame as well. It must have just slipped by. Um, but that's probably because I know you, Phil, and you wouldn't yeah. say those assholes over there with the mudslide deserved it. Like, that would just yeah. be so out of character. But, I'd probably but, leave the you know, show, we man. want people to reach out. We want people <laughs> yeah. to email us, ask us questions, clarity, whatever. Uh, you know, maybe you disagree. So uh, we are always, uh, you know, we're an open book. Come, uh, come explore the pages. We're an open book. Uh, that's that's what <laughs> you I got to say. Explore my pages any day. Um, so I have a little bit of uh, uh, an announcement. Another announcement. Um, so you know Isa from Britain, right, Phil? Uh, yes, I know <laughs> of. Yeah. So we know of Isa. Um, apparently, he's on Twitter as well. Uh, he has a podcast called Young, Free, and Coupled Podcast. The Young, Free, and Coupled Podcast that he co-hosts with his wife uh, Shamika. Um, so I connected with Isa. 
through Facebook. Um, he just sort of popped up uh, asking some questions, technical help and stuff. And he just sort of has a reputation of being a nice guy. So we connected and we had this hour and a half long conversation, like maybe like a month ago, um, where we're just like, yeah, let's just chat and see where it goes. And we just ended up recording it. Um, so last night I had another hour and a half long conversation with him and we're like, at the end, we're like, well, we should just turn this into another podcast. So, um, so I'm sort of, I don't know what form it's going to take, but I know it's going to be called colonial encounters and it'll Mm -hmm. be over on his feed, like either within the young free and couples coupled podcast, uh, stream, or if he decides to do another RSS, it's up to him. Um, I'm just going to sort of join as like the guy that phones in or whatever, and just going to kind of let Issa take the lead with this. But, um, I'll tell you, Phil, we've had some like really interesting conversations kind of comparing North America and Britain. Uh, we talk about politics and social issues, um, uh, leftist politics. It's, it's pretty good. I, I'm really looking neat. forward to seeing what he does with it. So there's a little bit of an announcement on my end. Yep. It's a neat title for a conversation or two. That's for sure. Colonial encounters. It's, uh, you know, up in Canada here, we've been talking a lot about colonial encounters, uh, of a kind. So interested to hear what you guys, uh, spit out on that one. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I should note to, uh, part of the reason we called it that Issa's of uh, Jamaican, um, heritage. So, um, he's like, know. you know, it's like colonial subject and Canada used to be a colony, so we're like critiquing like Western civilization, basically. <laughs> so uh, it mm-hmm. will be interesting. It's uh, I'm learning a lot as well from Isa. He's a really smart guy. Uh, so nice. looking forward to seeing what these uh, sound like, actually. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, I have another little plug. And uh, I'm going to say that this episode is in part brought to you by the book on podcasting, an insider's guide to recording success. And this is a recently launched like we're talking a few weeks old here book by alexander lauren the podcaster's coach um matt did you know that alexander wrote a book i did know that alexander wrote a book and i was eagerly anticipating its release um he was actually yeah. kind enough to send us both um ebook versions of it as well that is so, correct so yeah. we have the ebook sitting on our desktops uh so the book on podcasting was written to help podcasters shorten their path to success And the book covers the mindset and strategies to achieve happiness and success. So in it, you'll learn a new way of looking at podcasting and podcasters as art with the host as an artist. Like that's a, that's a really kind of different take on podcasting, right? Um, You also learn how podcasting can help you leave a long lasting digital legacy. So it's something published, it's out there. So why not treat it as that? Again, something different that you don't hear uh, through, you know, those channels that tell you how to be a great podcast or whatever. And the third thing, and this is probably the one that I love the most about the book, Matt, uh, the book basically tells you how to leverage the potential to reinvent yourself and change your life and podcasting. You know, I know Alexander spoken to him many times, uh, podcasting can be a life changing thing and it can lead to happiness it can open doors, you can gain authority through it, and really you can succeed uh, through podcasting. So this book isn't about how to get rich quick with a podcast. This is about how to make your life richer through podcasting. I love it. And huh. so 
you know, that's a really cool line, man. I actually really yeah, like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Say that again. <laughs> well, I'll have to press rewind on that one. That was, that was, just, that was off the cuff. Um, so a little bit, well, well, a, li- yeah, a little bit about Alexander. Alexander Lauren is at the forefront of life transformation within the podcast world. Did you know, Matt, he is the world's first authentic certified podcasters coach. Wow. Yeah. And wow. he's also an international coaching federation member. So he delivers inspiration and life transformation strategies and demonstrates the power of podcasting as a tool for success at speaking engagements across the globe. Uh, you might have seen him. Um, he was part of the 24-hour kind of uh, podcaster movement that just happened, and I think he'll join that again. But he's busy, man. He's everywhere. Um, really, really. So let, let me run through a little bit. So in addition to the podcaster coach, he's also uh, a life coach. He helps consultants and aspiring entrepreneurs implement successful marketing and authority building strategies. And Alexander is the host of the podcasters happy life, which is the podcast that we're on. He's also the founder of the business podcast network, which is like amazing. And outside of one-on-one coaching consulting, he's available for private or public speaking engagements. So he's out there, you know, I would say at least once a week, he's giving some talk about the power of podcasting and life transformation that podcasting can have. He's a really down-to-earth, amazing guy. Um, so that's the huge long plug for the book because I think if you're a podcaster or you're interested or you're thinking about starting a podcast, uh, this is the book for you. This is the book. This is where you start. Wow. Okay. Yep. So um, yeah, that was a lot. plug and a half, man. Well done. And Absolutely. I think uh, Alexander deserves it. He's, um, I could say it much more simply, he's like the most supportive of the yeah. super supportive indie podcast community. Like he is like, little too supportive sometimes no just um but i really like what you said there at the beginning man uh where the book is about seeing podcasting as an art form something that i've actually been thinking a lot about um really recently so it's that's kind of an interesting parallel and also that we're putting out a digital legacy so we're doing that with the chronicity files or the chronicity series and um i want to start it with the violet files my own little passion project digital legacy to my daughter of course um and i know you love that reinventing yourself and and tackling new markets and how can we do podcasting better so exactly um, sounds like yep. a fascinating read so i'm uh, i'm actually looking forward to uh, cracking open the ebook if that's even possible <laughs> that is possible matt uh, and if anyone's interested you can find alexander at podcasterscoach.com uh, and he also is on itunes on spreaker and uh, I'm just going to, uh, I'm, I'm going to say this. Okay. If uh, you like Alexander, check out the belief books. Uh, that's all I'm going to say. The belief books.com. Um, yeah, that's yeah. it. That's all. That's all I got. That's awesome. That's a little cliffhanger. I like that, Phil. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, find Alexander. He's all over the internet, all over social media. Um, easy to find. Uh, look for the fedora. Um, so Phil, instead look of the fedora. Um, the what do you hate more? Because I've actually been feeling pretty good lately. So yeah. All right. um, I think it's something a little bit more lighthearted. Um, okay. We haven't talked about cooking. We haven't talked about food. So I'm thinking a new little weird segment. I'm going to ask you, Phil, what's simmering? Uh, like, uh, what do you mean? <laughs> what's like, <laughs> um, uh, like I'm not uh, making yeah, this shatter. This is what happens what when I asking. don't talk. This is what happens on it. We don't talk off mic. Um, no. Basically, um, tell me, have you cooked anything interesting recently? Have you gone out and eaten any interesting food? Um, are you planning on doing a recipe in the future? Like, what's simmering? Yeah, kind of a cooking You segment, know, it's been corner. it's been a long winter. 
uh, up here in Canada for us. And uh, I do a lot of my cooking during the summer. Like, I'm not going to lie. I, I bust out my creative craft um, on the barbecue. That's where I do it. Um, but this winter, I did try something for the first time. Um, so I'm a shepherd pie kind of guy. You know, shepherd's pie, mm. the three layers, uh, you know. Hell yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, Just creamy, creamy yeah. mashed potatoes and then some cream corn and then some meat. You know, that's Needs uh, no explanation. I, no explanation. I like one needed. of those. Um, Absolutely. You know, for some, yeah, for some reason, um, some, some people call it Chinese pie, but uh, it's a shepherd's pie. What? Yeah. Who calls it a I Chinese pie? <laughs> uh, I don't know. That province called Quebec, I guess. Pâté chinois is what they call it. Um, yeah. So, but um, my wife wanted to do it uh, vegan style. She uh, she didn't really want the beef. She didn't want. Sometimes I'll I'll use a different meat, but she didn't want any meat in it, and uh, she wanted it vegan. So we did it with lentils, um, Matt. And I have to say it was phenomenal. It was great. Yeah. Uh, so I replaced the meat with some lentils that I simmered up with uh, some onion, some carrot, some peas, and I cut up some green string beans and put it, put it in there. Uh, garlic. Uh, some spices, simmer that up, and that was the base layer. And then Did you, uh, it was with great. the lentils, were they um, were they red lentils or were they the black ones? Mm, I think they were the red ones. Mm, yeah, I bought That's a can. Cool. They're, they're from a can. Mm-hmm. I didn't do the whole thing where I like cooked lentils from zero. They're like prepared lentils that I got. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm just yeah. curious because lentils figures in uh, quite prominently in my what simmering uh, mm. thing. But please go on. Yeah, so that's first layer. Oh, that's all I got. That well, after that, it's just corn and mashed potatoes. Like corn uh, and mashed potatoes. Yeah. Um, and do you just with the mashed potatoes or shepherd's pie just for people's uh, um, cooking needs? Uh, do you just slap them in the middle and just move them around, or do you do take do the bother of piping them out and making it look fancy? Uh, kind of in between. So, like with a a spoon, I put multiple big dollops of it and then uh, spread it around. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, that's, so uh, that's how I make it. So, what are you cooking? What are you? Oh, sorry, what's simmering? Haha, <laughs> there you go. Um, so I got a. Uh, I asked specifically for a really thorough Indian cookbook for Christmas from my parents. So they got me that. They delivered. It's like this great cookbook. It's like two hundred and fifty pages long, and all of it recipes um, with like some cooking tips and how to cook in that style, right? You know, like tools you need and spices you have to have, stuff like this. So. I made a lentil dish as my first one because I'm like, it's hard to screw up lentils. Um, it was just like a straightforward um, orangish curry. I used, um, you know, a number of different spices. Uh, I kind of followed the recipe to a T and it turned out pretty good, I think. Mel thought it was really good. I thought it was okay. So tonight, after we're done podcasting, um, I'm going to actually make alu gobi. Um, it's a interesting like cauliflower potato-y dish with some lentils in it and it uses garam masala and turmeric and um yeah i'm i'm just looking forward to it it's uh really easy as well so um i'll let you know how it works out awesome i love those easy recipes that's what i'm all about the three to five ingredients uh takes you you know 20 minutes 30 minutes and you can start to eat love it yeah, totally. So I'm trying to perfect my curries because that's what Violet's going to be raised on is Matt's curries. Yeah, so. uh, okay. <laughs> we don't do curries in the in the Primo house, but that's okay. That's <laughs> yeah, okay. I'll come over here. So, mm. um, yeah. Anyway, um, I uh, 
this is kind of uh, outside the norm, but I actually have some music for us to play. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so Phil uh, will read out how to contact her because he's way better at that than I am. But um, finally, I've gotten my good friend Gabrielle Giguere to agree to let us play her music on our podcast. So uh, she has two albums out. She's amazing in studio. And also um, her music style is very experimental. She plays around with like improvised um instruments and sound devices like if you go to her apartment it's like a audio museum i'll have to actually take you there phil you'll geek out like crazy just on the analog technology alone so Um, so is that is that like an open invitation that all of our listeners go to gabrielle's house yes because it kind of sounded that way to me yeah so uh, maybe you want to edit this out but her address is no (laughs) (laughs) so yeah so why don't you let them uh, know how they can find her and Uh, play a track or whatever her harbor is from ottawa ontario they are dreamy folk baroque pop uh her harbor is the moniker of singer songwriter gabrielle gier her debut album winter's ghost was released on etron records you can find her and her harbor music at herharbor.com you can also check them out on the facebook page at her harbor and her twitter account at her harbor we're gonna open it up with uh one of the tracks from winter uh, from go gently into the night 2017 and it's called hewing crowns
Welcome back. Once again, those were the lulling, dreamy, folky, so relaxing tones of Her Harbor, and that was Hue and Crowns. Today, folks, we were going to be talking all about social media and the idea that social media can help in the classroom. So, Matt, the jargony sort of way would be to say social media and pedagogy, right? Yeah. Like when you're talking about classrooms kind of stuff right I'm so such a dork that that's the first thing that popped in my head man so right pedagogy, yeah of course exactly oh, and you know <laughs> pedagogy is the art science uh, we may even say the craft of teaching so uh, when we use the word pedagogy it signals that teaching is informed by a method and it has built into it a philosophy of teaching of some sorts so pedagogy informs teaching strategies teacher actions and teacher judgments and decisions by taking into considerations theories of learning and understanding of students and their needs, as well as the background and interest of individual students. So we can imagine that anytime we are trying to teach something to someone as a parent or in the role of an educator or tutor, we rely on a certain pedagogy. Yeah. Okay. So um, a lot of meaty concepts to dig into there and I've already taken some notes, Phil. Um, so when I think of pedagogy, just for myself, um, I always thought before I tried being a teacher, I was a student first. So I would watch my teachers and try to learn from the good ones and the bad ones um, and learn things from both. So I think a good pedagogy is a critical pedagogy, first off, is something mm -hmm. that is um, responsive to the world around you and the political happenings. It's a relevant pedagogy. I think it's an adaptive one as well, and it's responsive. And I also think somebody who is a good teacher, let's just say rather than pedagogy again, um, somebody who is a good teacher is um, self-critical. They're able to step outside themselves and critically analyze their own pedagogy and um, make changes and improve. So right. I think the, yeah. that's a good way to start off there. Yeah. And I think, you know, what you just said kind of taps into like the three sort of elements of a good pedagogy, right? That it relies on some sort of theory some sort of way to make sense of the world, but it also takes into consideration the needs and wants of the students, right? So right. when you're thinking of something that is critical, you're thinking, well, how could my own knowledge be changed or shifted to better the life circumstances of those who I'm teaching to? That's really, that's really what critical pedagogy 
gets to, right? Yeah, totally. And I, um, I think uh, critical, like a critical pedagogy is a good place to start as well. Um, then, then the rest sort of come, come along with it. So like if you are responsive to the sociopolitical um, context of your times and the times that your students find themselves in, then you can be responsive to them and, and critical of yourself as well. So um, Phil, uh, has this been written about at some point? Um, I'm, I'm seeing here in the notes that I'm, I'm, I think you're supposed to talk about Pablo or Paulo Fieri. <laughs> so you got something um, on Paulo pedagogy, Fieri? P- pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paulo Fieri. A uh, huge successful book translated in, I think, like uh, 11 languages now. Um, wow. But basically the book uh, documents a case study and an experience that uh, Fieri had about teaching underprivileged children, um, students, and the power dynamics that can go into... Um, teaching basically anything, but in a way that can uplift the, the, the students, a way to make teaching and the act of teaching so powerful that it can actually change people's uh, living conditions. And um, it doesn't matter what you're teaching, but how and the methods and the craft of teaching can really touch and be profoundly transformational. And that's something that Freire talks about and Freire kind of takes like um, an anarchist sort of lens through it by saying that a lot of the structures that serve to oppress people can actually be taught to be reversed. Um, so that's something that's in the book, but highly recommended uh, to anybody who's interested in critical teaching, critical pedagogy, uh, or just the craft of teaching in general, pedagogy of the oppressed. Um, so I, I wrote a couple of notes again. Um so I like this idea of the power of change, and you see that with teaching, but you also see um, within statistics, quantitative statistics, uh, longitudinal studies, people who have higher educational achievements tend to be able to break the cycle of poverty, let's just say simply. Um, so you can see that he is grounding those sort of macro stats within the classroom. Now, I wonder, Phil, does he give a like a good roadmap on, on to how to use teaching politically and for political change and for social and economic change? Uh, Well, I think one of the elements uh, is knowing who your oppressors are. So if you're in, you know, South America and you're from a very, very poor community, uh, your life chances uh, are seen as being zero to nil, you know? Um, But if you go in there with the idea that you can tell these students to identify who their oppressors are, and then learn how to navigate the system to be able to overthrow them or to be able to change their circumstances, I think that's kind of the first step. Um, So I think, you know, I'm going to extrapolate a little bit, but I think teaching carries a certain amount of politics and like political perspectives or views for sure, but I'm thinking like little p politics as in questions of like morality and ethics, distribution of resources, what it means to be human. So in Freire's case, like, denying people access to sanitary water, for example, is a condition of their um, detriment, right? Like they're being oppressed by not having access to clean drinking water. But learning the structures that are around that condition can help, um, you know, potentially create some really innovative solutions for it. So I think, you know, pedagogy, teaching, it relates to power and um, power, which is central to the teaching and learning experience. In particular, so how we balance power, uh, or maybe how we do not balance power, 
But I think power is an important question for educators. Who holds power? How is power uh, transformative or not transformative in the classroom? What are the power dynamics before between teacher and student, for example, is another question that we might have. Yeah, totally. Um, so I think um, maybe as teaching assistants within sociology and anthropology, we're pretty we're going to be pretty acutely aware of power dynamics, or you you should hope we will be. So. Um, there's, you know, sort of BS ways that you can address power dynamics, you know, like I'd always wear a hoodie and a baseball hat. Like that's, that's pretty superficial. You know, I'd maybe sit on the front of the chair instead of standing behind a podium, but those are like, those are cosmetic almost, right? That's not really addressing structural power dynamics and inequality. So I know what you mean, Phil. So one of the ways I would literally try to attack some of these wider, um, power dynamics in society was in the language that I chose. Um, not just like swearing a little, but never using gendered, um, you know, discriminatory phrases, obviously, but even trying to make, um, corrections on my gendered pronoun usage. Um, and then also in the topics that we choose to, uh, cover. So as TAs, we usually have a tutorial, which is like 50 minutes once a week where, sure, you review the stuff that's covered in class, but you kind of have an opportunity to do a little mini lecture if you choose. So I would choose intentionally the topics that had a lot of political resonance and that re- relate to their, their time. So I think that's how I tried to start addressing some of the power dynamics and revealing who their oppressors are, as you said. Yeah, so I think, Matt, what you're getting to is that craftiness that's behind teaching, that idea that as an educator, we can start to shift a little bit in intentional ways how we convey information and how we actually teach, right? That's right. Yeah. And it's like, you know, Phil, it gets like one of the things that I think both of us really enjoyed was our office hours where we can have like one and one one on one encounters with students. But because of the realities of university life nowadays, those aren't always possible for TAs and students to get together. So um, maybe just as a prompt to start talking about social media, like is this one of the ways we can start using social media within a classroom is to actually have more encounters with our students and stay more connected? Well, this is exactly the point, right? And this is why I wanted to start at teaching and pedagogy rather than social media for the episode was that all the things we've discussed so far, so power, engagement, questions of morality, ethics, politics, and so on have been associated with social media. And, you know, web 2.0 and social media platforms have been said to be the great democratic tool of our times, giving voice to the voiceless and even helping in tangible ways to hold those in positions of authority in check. So I guess my question that I kind of have then is why have educators been so reluctant to embrace social media in the classroom? I mean, the supposed goals of the liberal classroom are directly aligned with the supposed goals of social media. And here I'm kind of talking about the liberal project to expand human potential and elevate human beings above their current state, not like the political stance of liberalism, just so that we're clear. But let me be clear about that. You know, some classrooms do not have the explicit goal of teaching students about social media and others do. So like communication courses, for example, that focus on uh, the development of social media platforms, journalism classes that take a serious look at how social media is working Uh, these sorts of things, you know, they're already talking and using social media. But I want to say that even a sociology or anthropology course 
um, that has some aspect uh, to social media can benefit from a more engaged stance with social media. So I think, you know, some courses have students do a project at the end uh, that they have to use social media, YouTube video or something like that. But that teaching goal is squarely focused on social media at the start. So what I'm talking about is courses, classes that have a goal of teaching something completely different. And I guess, like, could we imagine a classroom that has a goal of teaching about Plato's Republic? So it's a philosophy course. The goal is to teach Plato's Republic. Um, or maybe even like how an exhaust system connects up to the manifold on a truck engine, right? So something completely out of the realm of scholastic, like ivory towers, scholastic work, right? But could those classes use social media productively and reasonably and with purpose? Wow. Okay. So that last point you make there. So the class would be about something completely abstract and then you'd have to, sorry, use social media to, to analyze it. Like, is that the idea? Maybe. I mean, like the point that I'm getting to is social media is such a, a part of our everyday life. Um, why is it not in the classroom right now? Hmm. And I like what you said, like, or hinted at, um, that courses already exist where they will abstractly or theoretically analyze social media almost as like an object of study, right? Um, but they, there's not a lot of practical applications so is one of the avenues into literally using social media through uh, as a pedagogical method, um, maybe that's a good way to start. Now, what I would tack on there is there is um, a bit of a generational divide, and we might come back to this later, but I, maybe I just want to throw this out just as another little curveball. But there are many senior um, aged faculty members at the university level who are not super comfortable with social media, right? And maybe some who will even like turn their nose up at it. So um, that's something else we have to kind of work in as the um, the the um, the older uh, professors, yeah. essentially. Yeah, yeah. But I don't, you know, I think yes. There's an argument that there's a little bit of naivete around social media, so people don't know what it is, they don't know how to use it, this sort of thing. But it seems to me that. Um, that argument, especially for the certain class of people that we're talking about. So we're talking about generally university or college professors, uh, educated, um, supposedly in the know of their social surroundings, especially if they're coming from sociology or anthropology departments. How do you not know at least something that about social media? Like, how do you not know that social media is important and out there and that your students are using it? Yeah, And, and I think like, Sorry, if you don't, then it's almost like you resisted trying to learn, like almost out of like pr some sort of weird principle, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So and, like, I, I, you okay, know, yeah. I, I, I think that there is a, a fear of social media because of its unknownness, but that doesn't mean that we don't have the opportunity to use it in the classroom, right? So just because there's elements of it that are unknown doesn't mean that um, we shouldn't incorporate it into the classroom. And you know, if you think about it, um, the computer and the internet were quickly uh, involved in the classroom. So why have some platforms that operate on the internet been so slow? Yeah, it's true. It's like, I think there's a definitely a slight bias going on at play here, let's just say. But I wanted to actually return to this idea that you had about the um, how it's analyzed within classes. So 
I think what you're, it sounds like you're advocating for is for a pragmatic analysis. Like, let's put this into practice and then see how it operates and then build our theories off of that, rather than what I think has existed to this point, with obvious exceptions, um, of like a theoretical analysis. So you're like, social media is like, um, you can use like linguistic analysis on it or communication theory, um, you know, some classic theories like maybe social media and Marx. Uh, but I think what you're advocating for with using social media within the classroom, and if you're going to study it as a technology, um, you should do so by using it. And that's where the theory should come from. Yeah. And I think that's kind of, and, you know, later I'll finish off the episode with, um, you know, what I see as kind of three different avenues in which we could have social media in the classroom. But I think you're absolutely right. At one level, there's the analysis of. So what is this thing called social media? I'm going to say that we're already there. That, you know, in a lot of classes uh, in sociology, anthropology, communications, you know, across the social sciences, there's quite a bit of um, content based on what is Web 2.0? What is social media? What I kind of want to do is push that a little bit to say, well, is there a way that we can teach using social media? Can social media become part of our teaching toolkit? Much like books, much like essays, much like multiple choice exams, for example. These are all things that are part of our toolkit that we teach. Um, you know, we stand in front of a podium or behind a podium in front of a PowerPoint. Instead of it being a PowerPoint, is there a way that we can envision it being social media, supporting us in our teaching efforts? That's kind of my thinking where I want to bring our, our conversation. Um, but I think before we get to there, maybe one way that we can think of it is on the nature of social media and how it is or isn't related to the goals of education. So if we think of education historically, um, it, its intended purpose was to control a population, was to basically give a population um, a goal, like a, a project, which is the betterment of knowledge, the betterment of self through the attainment of higher knowledge. And then through that purpose, that goal, you could actually control um, how a population operates could govern them at a distance, so to speak. Totally, and, yeah. And just the idea of like a merit-based society. Exactly. Meritocracy is yeah. one of the things we break down in like sociology 100. But um, it's because for one, like the education system leads people into being ranked within a merito supposedly meritocracy uh, society. But of course, mm -hmm. when you think about it for a second, not everybody has the same access to education. And then you can just exactly. break it down from there. Exactly, yeah. So like education uh, classifies people, it serves a sorting function, it serves all these latent functions, right? Um, but social media isn't quite that project. It's not something that serves to necessarily sort and rank. Um, right. So if anything, you know, it flattens a little, right? Like it, it spreads it out laterally in a, in a way, right? Exactly. Yeah, it does. And I, mm. you know, another kind of latent function of education or the education system anyway, is that it serves as a basis to socialize pupils, students, right? So how do we do things? Like, uh, how do we respond to authority, the teacher standing in front? How do we encounter, like, how do we overcome obstacles such as having to write an exam? How do we, uh, you know, of course, read, write, do arithmetic and all that stuff. But then it's the more social skills. So how do you deal with a classroom of 30 other students? How do you deal with a bully in a class? How do you deal with mixed uh, gender and race potentially in the class? So, you know, those sort of secondary things might not align with social media necessarily. I don't know. 
Right. And um, I was wondering if we can like return to the power of the educator. So I think that's one of the things that social media does in the classroom is it kind of destabilizes that uh, teacher at the front of the with the chalkboard, uh, you know, directing the students like a conductor of an orchestra. Right. Um, So I wonder if that is one of the points of resistance by some educators to social media in the classroom is that it um, destabilizes their um, their authority. I uh, think you're absolutely correct. So, you know, <laughs> what you know, if you think about power relations in the classroom, right? The potential and the supposed authority that an educator has, it could actually be questioned through social media, right? And if we think about it a little bit more, the real intangible benefits that an educator has, their salary, their position, uh, their prestige standing in the front, could be replaced by a more spread out, decentralized model of learning through social media. So not only are educators at universities older, uh, but they also don't want to be thrown off the podium, right? They've occupied this place of authority for a while, um, and it might be daunting for them to, to step aside and let the decentralized collective actually partake in that journey of learning. Okay, so I'm going to make this make sense. Just give me a second. So... I think oftentimes we think of our economy today as decentralized, like everybody's delivering pizzas for Uber or whatever, like Uber Eats. Uh, Me and Issa actually talked about this uh, last night, um, the decentralization of the economy. Everybody has to have multiple jobs. We've talked about this before. Now, Mm -hmm. I think what people don't talk about enough is the response by big multinational corporations to monopolize certain sectors and industries. So as there's a decentralization of the economy, there's also a monopolization of the economy uh, by certain actors. Now, I wonder if that is a similar process that's happening in this school. Like perhaps decentralization of education and the proliferation of through social media and whatever um, and other learning platforms, because that's a whole other thing, learning platforms. But maybe that decentralization is going to be met with like a monopolizing tendencies as well by educators or universities? Yeah, I think uh, the attempt to have the monopoly on the distribution of knowledge has been something that the um, neoliberal, so kind of like within the last, let's say, 50 to 60 years, um, the neoliberal university has concentrated their efforts on. Um, And that, you know, that says something. And some of the distribution models have been not necessarily for profit. So we can think of free online tutorials or courses, uh, Harvard University or MIT posting on YouTube, um, some film lectures, for example. Um, so they're, they're not necessarily getting money from those videos, uh, probably advertising a little bit, but not a whole lot. Um, but still the monopoly of knowledge creation and knowledge distribution is centralized at the university or college level. So we don't live in a society that, that we think, for example, that I could go down the street and talk to my elder neighbor and learn something from them. And that is as valued as having a credential from university. So the move to credentialize and to have a piece of paper has basically forced institutional sets of knowledges to be created and adhered to, really. And, you know, changing that isn't, is very difficult. Uh, so I'm not saying that social media can do it, but 
maybe there's a way that social media can play a role in destabilizing it a little bit. It's interesting, man. Um, I wrote down what you described there, like going down your street and talking to your neighbor and learning something, something from them. That's social learning, like at the most rudimentary sense. But then everybody has prioritized learning through social media, whether they know they're learning or not, I guess. But uh, that's really interesting that we like poo-poo real-life social learning, but then we kind of praise the possibilities of social media. But uh, before we dig into those and maybe some some more topics related to the internet, um, perhaps a musical interlude? Yeah, we're going to take a little break uh, before it gets too stuffy up in here. Uh, yeah, totally. <laughs> here's a second track uh, off her album, Go Gently Into the Night. This is Her Harbor with Below Breaths. What's killing you, darling? The fly swam at your feet these days. But time doesn't change you. It's left you just the same This time I leave you But it's bitterness that will bleed you Yeah. 
everyone to some intellectual musings i am your co-host phil primo oh and i'm matt sanderson <laughs> today we are talking about social media we're talking about social media in the classroom we've been talking about teaching pedagogy uh throw in a nice curveball of power dynamics and institutional forms of knowledge uh, matt um i want to continue on a little bit with the critique before i get into kind of uh, the more promising aspects of bringing social media into the classroom. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to lay a claim. Okay. And I, I want to test it a bit on you, Matt. I think there's okay. a generalized fear of the mobile phone in the classroom right now. Okay. You, yeah. I can see you, that. Yeah. Yeah. Keep agree? going. Yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah. I can see what you mean. I sort of fear it a little bit when I was in the classroom. So. Yeah. You, you know, there's lots of course syllabuses, course outlines, um, that have a disclaimer in it, no cell phones. Do not be on your mm. cell phone during class time, right? Yeah, totally. And um, it's it's disappointing because I, I can kind of anticipate what you're going to talk about, but um, the possibilities that are present through your phone, like I know, I remember this one that looked really cool. It was like a voting system where you can just like vote yes, no, A, B, C, D or whatever yeah. uh, based yeah. on the PowerPoint slides or whatever that were up on the the overhead projector. Yeah. So I thought that was a pretty yeah. cool application yeah. in anthropology. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. You know, the mobile phone has become almost ubiquitous. We have it, we have one or two on us almost all the time. Um, but I think the university and colleges in particular have a fear of the phone uh, that stems from an antiquated idea that the classroom is a closed space and that the classroom operates outside of the world and that within a classroom, we're able to analyze or speak authoritatively about this outside world at a safe distance. So I'm actually going to say it's not a technological fear uh, of the phone, but it's actually more, uh, you know, a fear of opening up the classroom to critique or, um, you know, the possibility of fact checking in real time. It doesn't, you know, that model of fact checking what a prof is saying doesn't fit well with the prepared lecture model. Right. Yeah. No, this so. Folks, this is why I love Phil, because he, like, that was like just such beautiful critique. Okay, so yes, I agree. The uh, The classroom, especially the university lecture hall, is very much a closed space. Even when you open one of those doors, like, and then <laughs> right, bam, yeah. and it closes, yeah. and everyone's like looking at you when you're walking up from the bathroom. Exactly, um, yeah. And yeah, and the authority that exists in there, and we're always talking about the outside world, and that's why often people call us like cloistered in our ivory towers, right? right yeah. So... Um, yeah, I never really thought of it that way before, Phil, but uh, I think uh, cell phones in the classroom could be seen as a direct um, challenge to the authority of the professor. Yeah, and I think, you know, kind of in a similar way, there's been um, an attempt to displace the idea of a sage on the stage approach to teaching. So what I mean by that, uh, you know, the saying sage on a stage is that you have someone who is well-educated, uh, you know, a supposed learned person 
uh, standing up at the front who bestows their knowledge to a crowd uh, with little interaction, uh, with little, um, you know, uh, engagement with them. They come in, they give the material, they close their notebooks and they leave. Right. And this idea that you're a sage on the stage to really deliver a message, uh, it's been kind of challenged at the university level, but it's been challenged through things like, well, have more class activities, uh, show maybe some multimedia, so, so show some videos, uh, tell stories, these sorts of things. But, it, yeah. but you know, the idea of the classroom being a closed uh, place hasn't really been challenged. Yeah, and I think part of it is the um, the literal layout of a lecture hall. Um, that's a tough place to create like a, a homey feel. Um, but I think we, like you and I and other TAs, are able to do it easier with an editorial space because it generally is like 25 to 30 students, depending on how many show up, maybe 50. Um, so you can create that more like peer-to-peer sort of level engagement, and it just feels a little bit more... Um, intimate, but uh, I use that word very guardedly in this in this context. Um, so we're talking a lot about power dynamics, Phil. We're talking a lot of theory, a lot of theoretical ideas here, but like quite literally, um, how can educators out there maybe use social media and other online resources within the classroom setting and maybe even beyond uh, to empower their students going forward? But like literally, what what can we do with the internet and social media? Yeah. So I think where we're kind of at right now, okay, so like a kind of a baseline is that you have uh, uh, several different roles. There's the role of the educator, there's the role of the student, and I'm going to kind of call it like the role of um, an average social media user. So those people who are neither educators nor students um, in this kind of play, let's call it a, you know, production um, but they're like on tripartite, piercy, and semiotic model. Yeah, but yeah, sure. No, sure. We'll call it a play. Call it a whatever. play. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. Um, oh boy, you just opened up a whole can of worms on that one. I'm not. I'm not going there. Not going that was there. like a landmine it's for me and Phil. Not going there. I'm not going to talk about triads versus dyads. I'm not okay. So anyway, so some of the things that are already being done right now. All right, blogs. Uh, Matt, you mentioned one that's kind of like uh, similar to live tweeting, uh, but live tweeting during conferences, huge. Lots of people love it. Oh, yeah, totally. Um, yeah. YouTube videos, you know, that it's a form. Uh, what we're doing right now, podcasting, you know? So I think these are somewhat more closely related to traditional models of media. And, and I'm going to get probably critiqued on this, but what I mean by that is that it's more of a one-way communication style. So information isn't really being thrown around dynamically. It's produced, then consumed. Maybe there's a little bit of back and forth, but it's um, not at the same level as we'll see, I think, in my third kind of what we could do with social media. So these kind of things, blogs, live tweeting, YouTube videos, podcasting, for example, they're within reach and they've been taken up and you know we're here, relatively speaking, right? So you can go into a classroom that is engaged uh, somewhat and instead of having to write a 10-page research paper, you produce a podcast. Or maybe for a midterm assignment, you get together in a small group and you make a YouTube video and you post it on YouTube, right? Um, go to a conference, they'll be live tweeting. These, these are kind of, I'm going to say, very light usages of social media. Um, but they're there. They're there. And we can't ignore them. They're there. 
So yeah, I like your list here, Phil. Uh, some of these technologies are older internet technologies like blogging that's been around forever. But then there's um, modifications and new technologies like YouTube videos that you can channel through social media. Even the act of engaging with social media and maybe getting traction is something interesting to analyze. I think there's a lot of possibilities out there. Um, and also what I think is interesting is that some of these tools and tricks and techniques are borrowed from the so-called outside world and adopted into the classroom and vice versa. You can learn some of these skills um, with a active me social media component to your classrooms and then apply them out into the workforce. So I know as soon as you said live tweeting from a conference, I'm like, oh yeah, of course, because my wife works in politics, all her friends live tweet whenever they go to a convention. Right, right. Um, so yeah, so like you can see direct parallels going back and forth actually. So even though the communication may be one directional at times, um, the applications go back and forth. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I think... Um, live tweeting during a lecture doesn't happen. So live tweeting during a conference during a particular time uh, is happening, but I want to bring it to the next level. So I want to talk about next level social media engagement. All right. And I'm going to, I'm going to kick it off. I'm going <laughs> to kick it off with live tweeting during lecture about lecture. Right. So that is um, instead of having a dull PowerPoint in front uh, of you or behind you in front of the classroom, however, wherever your position in this game, this thing, right? Okay. Uh, and so instead of having the whole screen being your PowerPoint, Prezi, whatever, uh, you know, a quarter of it is a, a live tweet feed uh, following a particular hashtag for that course. And uh, students can send in their tweet, their question, and the professor in the front uh, can respond dynamically to it. So there's an example. Haven't seen it. Haven't seen it done for a lecture. Um, another one, that's a, sorry, man, that's a really good example. That that's cool. I'm just thinking now I'm like, cause I would love, I was trying to get questions for and comments from the students and tutorial and they're so reluctant to do it. But if they're engaging with each other on social media, maybe it's more comfortable for them to ask a question yeah. through that yeah. medium. And regardless of whether I think that's odd or not, um, that's just the way it is. So might as well increase student yeah. engagement. That's our yeah. job. And, that's and cool. like all, like, yeah. You know, oh, I'll yeah. annotate this comment by saying that there are some uh, technologies that are designed for classrooms that replicate this in a certain way, right? But my feeling yeah. is that whenever you tell students, well, let's use this tweet-like platform or let's use something that's like a tweet, you've lost their interest. They don't want to use something that is like Twitter. They want to be on Twitter, right? Um, so anyway, that's 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 kind of my, my comment on that. And it kind of follows mm -hmm. to my next sort of, where we could go next. Um, Facebook, a little antiquated for students. You know, I think a lot of older adults love Facebook. We love looking at the pictures, uh, reading comments, doing that. Ask your students if they're on Facebook. Probably not, but their parents are. So why don't we have Facebook pages and groups for classes where parents can join? Uh, they can follow what's going on. Students can join. They can post their comments. If you're an educator at a college level, for example, or even at a like a high school level, you could post uh, kind of itineraries for field trips. You could share what's going on. Again, there are in-house solutions that do this. But if everyone is already on Facebook, everyone has a Facebook account or almost, then why not do it through there? And, you know, that's a good idea, too, man. It's like increasing parent parental engagement. It's like almost having an ongoing parent teacher student night. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. But only at the university level, which is a real big issue that I've all again, bing. Uh, take another shot. Never thought of this either, Phil. But uh, 
you know, when you go off to university, you just go to these classes and your parents might ask you or parent might ask you, oh, what are you doing? You're like, oh, I'm taking sociology. Oh, what's that about? Oh, I'm learning about society. You know, like they never even know what you're actually right. doing in yeah. these classes. Yeah. So, um, and sometimes they're paying, flipping the bill. So maybe they want to know where their money's going. Exactly. Yep. So, yep. yeah. Cool. Um, so I think now uh, some listeners will have in their mind, uh, I've mentioned uh, commercial platforms and the question of anonymity and the question of what is done with students' personal information um, probably is on the forefront of everyone's mind, Right. Why would you want to post to Facebook uh, an itinerary of where your son or daughter will be? Uh, we don't want to do that, right? Um, fair enough. So what oh, I would right, say yeah. is oh, God. that yeah. <laughs> if anybody's going to do this and if we are to go yeah. ahead with this, we also need to be cognizant of some of those things. But it is no different than having a letter sending campaign where you have a pen pal in across the world and your child or your students write a letter and we send it in the mail. What happens if someone else opens it? What happens if someone sees their, their letter? What happens, right? Um, but we don't see it that way. We don't see sending a letter to someone halfway across the world as problematic. We have to get to the, to the point where security controls, preferences are known, they're used. We read the terms of conditions on Facebook and Twitter and all these sorts of things. We get used to it a little bit, right? So set those security measures. You know, make a closed group, make a closed page, uh, make it so that you have to accept people in, uh, that sort of stuff. There's ways around it. There's ways that we can totally. do social and, media um, safely. So I see um, in uh, the notes that you have for yeah. us here. Oh, sorry, man. Um, I think I might have uh, got cut out there. So I see there, Phil, in the notes that you have prepared, uh, something that I've actually done without realizing I was using social media and the internet within the classroom. So you say here, sometimes you can fact check, fill in the blanks on biographies, fill out a theory a little bit um, as a student for the teacher, instructor, teaching assistant, whatever, um, on the fly while the lecture is going on. Exactly. And yeah. I would routinely ask my students like, oh, wait, did he die in 45 or 32? And I'd get them to like quickly look up like little facts or, um, hey, can anyone find me a quick definition of this concept? And then they'd be quickly like racing to get yep. it. And um, and that's an old school trick um, that my mom would do with uh, primary school students where she would throw out candy to them, uh, incentivizing them to do something. So I'd just give them a good job or whatever. But that's, yeah, it worked. So that's a really good tip. So so do you have other ones? or? So yeah. what I'm thinking is that is there a way that we could design our lectures and have in there a moment in which the class can then go and use social media to fill in the blanks. And, you know, really this, we could read it as uh, giving uh, students prompts um, or, you know, maybe even relying on them to move the lecture ahead. So um, really it comes, it comes down to how we envision the dynamic between teacher and student in the classroom. And then being creative about how we can harness social media's potential in that dynamic. Um, I think that's the next step, and I don't think we're too far off. I think uh, we can get there reasonably quickly. And as you said, Matt, you know, you even use some of those techniques. So uh, why not envision uh, in the very short future that we would be doing that? But I want to go even further. All right, as we do on the show, uh, <laughs> stretch the imagination, stretch the potential, uh, and it might be out of reach, uh, but. Um, 
imagine uh, you know a classroom based on a social media learning model. All right. So here's here's kind of what I envision. All right. So using a flipped classroom. So a classroom where students read the material and lecture notes ahead of class, and then class time becomes about doing something about what they just read. That's the idea of a flipped classroom. All right. So we're in a flipped classroom. Why not create a social media campaign uh, to raise awareness about a certain issue together? So think of a lecture hall with 300 students, all tweeting the same hashtag for an hour and a half, commenting and engaging with people who are not in the class as well around the topic, getting something to trend collectively. That could be a huge win, right? So the teacher uh, in this uh, scenario would serve as a guide for students' questions and could help messaging when students need it, but it's all student-led. That's interesting, almost like a facilitator. Exactly. In that, in yeah. That sense. Yeah. 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 So that that's a cool. So idea. the students really could like find, uh, you know, the cause that they want to promote. The teacher could then assign some readings for them to learn about it, be informed about it, and then when they get back together in class, the idea is to all jump on social media and do something about it. So think of it as, you know, the letter writing campaigns to MPs or members of, of, of political parties, your mayor, for example, that we used to do, uh, you know, a few years ago. So yeah. learn about an issue, yeah. write to your, 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 poli- your local politician, write to your local senator about this, right? Now we go to social media. We can start a campaign on it, start a hashtag, start a movement, get it trending, right? In an hour and a half. That would be crazy to do. That'd be so interesting, man. And uh, I really like that idea. And you can really easily tailor it uh, topically to whatever the content of the course that you're teaching is as well. You just make it about an environmental issue if you're talking about like environmental anthropology. So, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's a really yeah. cool idea. Um, yeah, interesting. All right. I have, I have another model. Let's get real radical. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I have another model. And this might be heresy to universities uh, who I think are scared of what I'm about to say. All right. But um, let's envision using Snapchat in the classroom. So Snapchat, the platform Snapchat is not for grown-up teachers, all right? But it is where students are. Like I've asked, I've asked other teachers, our students at university uh, are all on Snapchat. They love it, okay? So what I'm talking about um, is about connecting people and understanding how knowledge and information flow through societies. Uh, We could use Snapchat to do that. We can make some observations using Snapchat, all right? So think of using Snapchat to trace how a viral post moves from person to person, who likes it, who shares it, et cetera. It's time sensitive. So Snapchat is one of these things where a post stays up for only 10 or 15 seconds and then it's gone forever, right? So this has to be done during class. It has to be done while lecture is happening. And we all actively have to be tracing the formation of a network uh, together. So students are reporting back their findings as they see it, as it comes in. So at the end of class, we could have an idea of where, so geographically, what, so the content of the the posts, and the reactions, the sentiments around it. So it seems to me that this could be the basis for a mini ethnography. So if we combine it with some readings that are done at home, again, in the flipped classroom setting, this could be a space where we collect data, share results, and leverage the power of an interconnected set of people with all eyes on one problem, issue, or event. And we can think of it as having like 100 research assistants all working together at it for a dedicated amount of time, let's say 45 minutes, all looking at the unfolding of one thing in real time. So the data could be amazing that you get out of that. Um, oh, it's fascinating. Yeah, no, it's fascinating, man. It's like, 
um, what's happening in the moment. And then you also have the reflexive component of writing about that happening in the moment. So it's, uh, yeah, it's very um, interesting just on a perspective uh, level. Yeah, exactly. Right. So the potentials are there. So think of it like, so we spend 45 minutes of the class tracing this network, the people, the, the sentiments around it, and then you pull it all together, together, right? The students and the teacher. And then we develop a lecture on the fly of what we found. So it's an unprepared lesson. It's spontaneous. So it's on-demand cool. teaching. So what your students are That's looking cool. at, you have their attention, you have their interest, their focus, they're engaged because there's a limited amount of time to make the next move. Like they want to know, what do I do in this scenario, right? Those one and a half hours or three hours would go by so fast. And at the end of each class, you would have something tangible that comes out of it. Or maybe you don't. Maybe the discussion would be then why uh, it failed, right? Which is a teachable learning moment as well. So, Absolutely. so think of walking into lecture as an educator with nothing prepared. All you know is in the next 45 minutes, some topic about society or some topic about a problem is going to be thrown at you and you have to be on your feet, react to it in real time. I feel like me on this podcast episode right here, buddy, because I just sort of opened up the notes. I was like, all right, let's, let's go. go. There you um, go. We're putting it into practice. Yeah, no, it's it's fascinating. So I think that's why I said so many times, well, I never thought of that before. Um, this has been a really fascinating uh, episode for me personally, Phil, because uh, I'm I'm a bit of a Luddite. I think you know this about me and other people are probably becoming aware of it. Uh, but I don't, like, I'm kind of suspicious of social media, but you've, kind of opened my eyes to the possibilities, the pedagogical possibilities, let's say, of uh, social media in the classroom. So that was, uh, that's quite enlightening, man. Yeah. And, you know, I think um, I'll I'll leave you with the last word on this, Matt, just because, but before we get there, I just want to say, like, I want to be clear that scholastic pursuits, so what we're talking about, uh, social media at the university level, it's not going to change the nature of social media. Right? Like it's not going to change that there are a lot of dumb, stupid shit that goes on in social media, right? I think right. if we can engage with social media in, in an enlightened way and use it productively in a classroom setting, maybe we can become social media literate. And what I mean by that is that social media isn't where you go to uh, just, you know, kind of mess around, that it's actually serving that that goal, that supposed goal that we're talking about of being decentralized, uh, being able to capture many people's sentiments and put into action and really being able to hold uh, those in power and authority to check. So maybe, maybe this is like a dream goal, but maybe uh, social media can actually become what it can do if we start using it in the classroom. Yeah. Totally, man. And um, oh, that's really the nature of education right there is sparking the young minds and um, letting them take the torch and running with it. So um, I think social media presents a really realistic vehicle to facilitate that. All right. We're, we're going to wrap up, Matt, uh, this episode uh, with another track from Her Harbor from Ottawa, Ontario. Uh, again, this is from her, her most recent album, Go Gently Into the Night. Uh, we're going to play the track Come Half Moon. Um, thank you for joining us this week. Uh, it's been a pleasure having you around. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at the underscore SIM underscore POD. You can find us on Facebook at Simpod. You can email us semi-intellectual at gmail.com. Subscribe to the show. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and everywhere else 
where you catch your podcast. And, uh, you know, send us, a, send us an email. Send us a note. Ask us a question. Engage with us. This is how you can support the show. Support the show by, uh, you know, calling us out. Saying, hey, I think Phil was wrong about this point. I think this. We want to know. Yep, totally. Or even even some clarity, man. That's uh, that's always appreciated absolutely, as well. So absolutely. Just so I don't, just so I don't forget. Thanks again, Gabby, for letting us uh, play your music. Thank you, Gabby. Uh, when we come back, we're gonna have some thank yous.
Ladies and gentlemen, this is Thank Yous and High Fives. A little bit of microphone in my life, a little bit of editing by my side, a little bit of reviews is all I need, a little bit of Twitter loves what I see, a little bit of five stars in the sun, a little bit of Matt all night long, a little bit of Phil, here I am, a little bit of you makes this your show. (laughs) Welcome, (laughs) thank you, Uh, this is the reviews for this week. Uh, I'm just going to kick it right off. I'm going to head over to iTunes and I want to send a huge thank you to old school ninja from the U S of a, who left us a review. They said, great show must download for all in academia. That is such a compliment. Thank you for that. Uh, they go on to say the hosts pack this show with interesting information and thought provoking discussion but thanks to the relaxed banter and simple packaging, this podcast is at once accessible, informative, and enjoyable. Five stars. That's what we like to see. Five stars. Thank you so much, Old School Ninja. And uh, I have uh, another one from iTunes. This one is Justin uh, from Share a Slice Podcast. Sean from over there left us uh, a really nice review as well. He says... Super informative, but not dull. This show teaches you things in a way that makes you feel not dumb, but smart AF. And for all of us old folk out there, I believe that is as impress your friends and family with the tidbits of well-researched information while being entertained by the hosts. I'm a regular listener. Thank you so much, Sean, from Share a Slice podcast. And maybe this is going to reveal a bit too much. But uh, we're gonna uh, we're gonna have Sean on. Sean's gonna uh, be part of us as a special co-host, as Anthony was. Uh, that's gonna be coming up. So stay tuned for that. Um, I said that I would talk about how important reviews are, and they really are important for a variety of reasons. One thing that people say is that to get a higher iTunes ranking, we need reviews, we need ratings, we need all that. That is true. That is true. I'm not going to deny that. But for us, it does something else. It gives us the motivation to continue. It gives us the drive to reel in our passion every week and put it down on audio and give it to you. Uh, But it also does something else, a little bit more tangible than just making us feel good. When we submit our show to networks or when we try to get advertisers on board with us, we give them a list of reviews. So it's kind of like a reference letter. If you're applying for a job or maybe a teaching post and you need, you know, students appraisals of you, that's what the reviews do to us. Uh, We include them in our portfolio package. We send them off to whoever we're trying to pitch our show to. Uh, We need them. So the more we have, uh, the better positioned we are to say, hey, listen, people like us, people enjoy what we're putting out there. So I want to thank everyone who has taken a moment of their hectic schedule of their busy life to leave us a review. Uh, We're going to keep reading them. So the deal is if you send us a review, we'll read it. Um, And how you can do that is to get into contact with us. You can do so on Twitter at the underscore S I M underscore P O D. Check out our Facebook page at the Simpod that is on Facebook. You could email us semi-intellectual at gmail.com. Visit our website, uh, thesim.podbean.com. Podbean uh, is a is a great place as well to uh, leave us some comments on the 
individual episodes. Let us know what you're thinking. You know, sometimes we get things right. Sometimes we get things wrong. Let us know. Uh, Again, huge thank you and huge high fives to everyone who has talked to us, engaged with us, reached out, said hello to us in any form. Thank you so much. Uh, You are what makes the show possible every week. Uh, I'm going to leave you all with another track from Her Harbor, from Ottawa, Ontario. Check her out. Uh, Gabby is a great person all around, but an amazing singer and songwriter. This is Memento Mori from the album Go Gently Into the Night. Talk to you all soon. You will break it twice. Once we part And once for the notion of you Once we love And once for the two Sim